Hello, Signal Boost listeners. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. After five years on SiriusXM Signal Boost, hosted by Jess McIntosh and me, we ended our run. We got to bring you so many guests through this podcast, and we appreciate you spending your time with us. I'm delighted that we've relaunched the show as Mornings with Zerlina. More of the news, conversations, and explorations you enjoyed on Signal Boost, of course, plus new ways to engage with you, our listeners, such as calls during the live show, 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, weekdays on the Progress Channel 127. My partner in feminism, Jess, and I are still very close. We are still friends, but she is out there fighting the good fight for progressive politics and might even pop up for an interview or two on the new show. And of course, Professor Eugene Maxwell fans will be glad to know your favorite biologist and my dad will continue to be a regular guest on Friday mornings. I'll be excited to share all of his future appearances with you. I'm excited as well. And I'll be able to share my favorite Mornings with Zerlina segments and interviews with you here on the podcast. Now stay tuned for the Mornings with Zerlina podcast. The vicious voices of the right are out in full force. And it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with change makers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today is Alex Goldstein, the creator of Faces of COVID, which I'm sure you've seen on Twitter. It documents all the lives that have been lost uh, during this pandemic. Thank you so much for being here today. Good morning, Zerlina. Thanks so much for having me again. I appreciate it. Of course. I mean, what you're doing, um, number one, should be done by a mainstream media organization, but um, but or you know, government entity. Um, but that's okay. Um, we don't thank you have for that. saying that. We by have the way. you. No, no, no. It's true. <laughs> no, no. I, I. This is something that I've really struggled with. Is you know, why is some guy in his <laughs> office in Waltham, Massachusetts, at six in the morning? the one with all of this information in front of me and this database of names. And I could not agree more that this really does belong somewhere else with some more responsibility beyond uh, just sort of like volunteer amateurs. But uh, I, Well, it just feels like it, it should be officially documented by our government, right? Or, mm-hmm. or some sort of like official institution, like a nonprofit that the government pays something um, right. that, that is sort of an entity set up for this purpose because a million dead, that's not a number, and I've said before on the show, like, my dad's a biologist. So when my dad explained to me what was going to happen at the beginning of the pandemic, he did say, like, a million Americans could die. And I was like, what are you talking, you're a crazy person. Like, I was like, you are smoking all the crack rocks. <laughs> I didn't say that to my dad. I didn't, I didn't say any of that. But I looked at him like he had three heads, and I was like, that's not possible. And also, like, I'm the 9-11 generation. A million right. Americans dead is just like not it's an incalculable number because, you know, when 3000 Americans died, that changed world history. We there are two wars who resulted from that. There's a lot of things that change as a result of just that. So when you think about the very first day you decided to do this, um, you know, how did you sort of approach 
the mission of trying to at least document um, what what has turned into, I think, a project that no one ever could have imagined the size of. Like you just could no. never imagine it no, being this not way. at all. And you know, when when I started it, uh, first of all, I think I I felt like I was trying to fill a void in my own personal abilities to process what was happening because. Mm-hmm. You know, as I think you and I have discussed a little before, the the opening days of the pandemic, and and frankly, this has been a fairly consistent thread, was such a heavily data-oriented message, which like understandably so, but we were, you know, you recall in the beginning, the whole conversation yep. was flatten the curve, right? Yep. Everything was flatten the curve, and then it was deaths, hospitalizations, ventilators, et cetera. And well, I think that was vital. Um, what I think sort of it lacked in terms of making it personal for people and making it real was the the names and the faces behind the numbers and sort of the emotional part of that story that we can all connect with. But I will tell you that when I first started it, I thought to myself, I actually remember saying to my my wife at the time, I was like, you know, this could be really bad. Like we could be doing this for a couple months and, you know, to be here two years and two months later and, you know, hitting this million milestone. Although I'll say when, when I think about a million, the road to a million was paved with a tolerance for 100 and then a thousand and then a hundred thousand and then onward right and so you know people have asked me all these questions what do you think about a million and i keep coming back to like the moment we were willing to tolerate a thousand uh you know or whatever milestone you want to point to you know someone was comparing the two new york times front pages from a hundred thousand and a million like we we set ourselves up for this in so many ways by what we've been willing to tolerate and um, what systems we've sort of allowed to see fail before our very eyes. And then, of course, the reality that it, there are decades of policymaking that led to this moment that the U.S. is now, I believe, you know, in the top 15 in the world in terms of per, per capita death from the pandemic. I mean, this is a really important point that I think more people need to understand, is that if you consume news and media from other parts of the world, it's not actually like it is here. Um, You know, uh, you know, one of the things that frustrated me sort of mid maybe a year into the pandemic, um, you know, I consume a lot of we have K-pop Tuesdays. And the reason why is because I consume a lot of content from Korea. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I realized about a year into the pandemic, I was like, they're they're doing stuff. They're doing normal stuff. Uh, They're out here eating at restaurants. They're like out, you know, shopping, moving about their lives. And, you know, they wear the, the mask for the most part and take it off for things, but they're socially distanced and they're just following the directions. <laughs> like right, they're, they're, right. they're actually just following the directions and they're actually able. And if you talk, I mean, I have a, um, a real person Korean tutor because um, I'm taking Korean lessons. Um, cool. And um, so it's so interesting the first few minutes of each lesson to sort of talk about COVID because it's horrible here. And he's like, we did, we just took our masks off. We're like, he's like, we're chilling out. <laughs> like, you know, they're not in the same reality that we are. Um, and I feel like it's such an important point that you hit about when we tolerated a thousand, you know, it sort of paved the way for a million. I mean, talk about the ways in which you found it so important to document the stories. I mean, the, the, the people that we're losing, because it's, it's not just like numbers. I hated the beginning of the pandemic on all of the channels. There was that like number at the top of the screen that was just yeah. like every day, the number would get bigger. And I'm like, that is somebody's mom, <laughs> you know? And, know. and, and know. it just, it really frustrated me that there wasn't a lot of stories, t- storytelling. And there still isn't any more other than faces of COVID. 
where people are really telling the stories about all the people that we've lost and their backgrounds. Yeah, and I think it's it's important and I'd say vitally important for so many reasons. Um, I think on like the most basic human level, it is necessary because if a million, you know, if a million is our confirmed number and we extrapolate from that, that that's obviously much higher. And we further extrapolate that those individuals had more than one or two people in their lives who loved them and relied on them and cared about them, but maybe more like 15, 20, 50, you know, depending. And so now we multiply that out. That means that we've got, you know, somewhere around 30, 40, 50 million people in this country who had a direct hugely consequential loss of someone who really mattered to them and their lives over the last two years from this pandemic. And the sort of cascading consequences of that grief are really, really significant from a mental health perspective and, and in so many other ways. And I think like the most basic thing we can do as a society is say to those people that we see you and mm -hmm. that you are not alone in that grief and that when you lost your loved one, we all lost something. And that's something that like, you know, you that, that just seems like a most basic human compassionate thing to do sort of as, as a starting point. And I think from there, you know, the, the, the personalizing of those stories become important because if you can see yourself in the story of somebody else's loss, you will make better decisions. And mm -hmm. I would also argue that if our policymakers, uh, you know, are present um, and, you know, bearing witness to this as well and spending time with these families, which I have a whole side rant about how few politicians um, across the country have sort of openly and willingly sat down with families of people who have died of COVID and heard from their stories. When you think about how we react to almost any other kind of loss, that's actually a very common thing to see policymakers engage in that way. Yeah. And yet in terms of just like sitting in a room quietly and allowing families to talk about their experience, it's like, they, we just haven't, I, I think across the spectrum, haven't really seen people willing to go there. And I think there's consequences um, to that from a, from a policymaking level. I also think that there's a really, these stories, when we make them real, when we put a name on them in a town and their favorite food or the story they would tell their family to make them laugh or um, you know their uh, contribution in the workplace that they were proud of, um, it makes it, it makes it easier to hold ourselves accountable for the failings, right? Because it, it, it puts a name on that accountability because we need to be accountable for these folks. Mm -hmm. These people, their legacy will be whether or not we are able to hold uh, those to account, especially when you look at you know, catastrophic breakdowns in terms of what happened in nursing homes and veterans homes across the country um, or the you know, communities that were just genuinely unwilling uh, to mask at all or advancing anti-science aggression on vaccines and the consequences of that, um, you know, I think it, we get closer to accountability when we say these names and, and center these actual stories where people can see their own families in their faces. Do you remember the first post you had at the beginning? I do. Um, and What's interesting about it is you mentioned the 9-11 generation mm -hmm. and there's a reason why I'm, I'm also the 9-11 generation. I was a, a junior or senior in high school when that happened and remember watching the live you know, funerals of firefighters for days and days and days um, afterwards. And 
the first story I shared was a firefighter who had uh, died of COVID in New York, who had been a first responder on 9-11. <laughs> and the, uh, there was something that just spoke to me about both the injustice of that and also that like, this was not like, this is happening. Like this is real as, this is as real as that was right. in terms of um, that loss. And so I think there's actually a reason that I kind of gravitated towards that story first. His name was John Knox. He was actually the, had just retired not long ago as the fire marshal, I believe um, in New York city. And uh, you know, had been, you know, one of the first folks on the scene on 9-11 and that just kind of punched me in the gut. And then the more I pulled, you could find every single story imaginable from every single corner of this country. Mm -hmm. You could see yourself. There's, there's someone on faces of COVID who will remind you of a family member or a loved one or a coworker or a friend. And I think that's part of the work. I mean, it, it's really, really true. It's like, um, you know, it's people of all ages, but I think also the way that you describe them um, is also really um, important. So I wanted to sort of hone in on that. Um, are, are, are the descriptions of each person, um, you know, do you work on that with the family members, um, it, with the submissions? Like, how do you decide what little anecdote and, and description you're going to put with each post? Because I think that that's actually one of the most beautiful parts about it, um, you know, because it goes from sort of like she, you know, this person was was a light to everyone who knew her or, um, you know, this person, you know, was a TV technician um, and worked every day, you know, really hard to take care of his family. Like it can be, you know, lofty and, and sort of philosophical um, right. or, or really practical and just like this person loved their family and worked really hard. Like um, how do you, is, is that just family um, submitted or do you work with them? On, yeah, so on the I, I try to kind of strike a balance between kind of being passive and active and helping mm -hmm. families do this. I think on one hand, I rely on the information that families provide, but I also uh, have, I would sort of describe it as this. If I can, my goal is to write these in such a way or to rely on a quote with, because oftentimes I'm getting submissions that are, you know, a thousand words, or, yeah. you know, 500 words. And so something that goes far beyond what I could fit into a single post. And I try to look for the, the line or two that if, if I were to take out all of the identifying information, their name, their age, their town they're from, and the family were to just read that line, they mm. would know it was their loved one that we were oh. talking about. Um, because I think, that line and that nugget is usually in each one of these and it's uh it's the thing that made them who they were to their family you know there's i had this one i posted the other day a, a woman sent me a post about her father and the line was that if you find him in heaven uh he, he wasn't much for religiosity but he'll take a really good brazilian steak because american food is terrible and <laughs> i was like you know okay so any member of that family would read that and say that i know exactly who that one's about that's really and, funny um so oftentimes you know that's what i what i strive for and but you know sometimes the all that families want to share is just a word or two and you know mm -hmm. i had one the other day and the entire post was this woman's name and where she was from and on the day that she died of COVID. And then the quote from her family was, we miss her, right? Yeah. And that was it. Um, and so I, I want people to use the space as they see fit because I recognize that when you take the most notoriously toxic social media platform uh, you know, yeah. out there 
and then you launch your loved one who passed away into that ecosystem and then you kind of wait to see what the world does with it that is about as vulnerable as it gets and i i want to respect the fact that not everyone you know wants to put everything out there mm -hmm. right they may just want a couple words and um you know and some people share some of the most intimate moments i've had posts where people literally have sent me the photo um, the day after their loved one died of their loved one's final moments. Like those, that oh, is wow. in some of the posts, there's four or five of them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what people are comfortable letting others into is really up to them. And then I just try to, you know, build it in a way that uh, allows them to feel as seen as possible, I guess has been sort of my, my rule of thumb. I mean, I'm sure the reasons are different, but do you, is there any sort of consensus that you find of why families um, DM you. You know, I think they, they, they want to be seen. I think that that's, that's true. But I also find that, especially in some of the posts where you're talking about people who did all the things right and tried to avoid right. COVID, um, and they're still here, <clears throat> documented on this page, because they unfortunately passed away. I mean, I think some, some of the posts, you definitely can feel the energy from the family where part, part of their their reason is to get us to follow the directions now right, right. um please right um and listen to the scientists i mean w what are some of the sort of overlapping reasons as to why people have told you like they wanted their family member remembered in this particular way yeah so i think the most the most universal reason that people have come to faces of covid to share their story is because for the vast majority of people who lost someone to COVID, COVID not only took their loved one's life, but it also completely upended the way they would have mourned that loss yep. in another setting. And so it may have directly impacted, for example, the goodbyes. They said goodbye by Zoom or by FaceTime or through a nurse holding a phone to somebody's ear because they couldn't be in the hospital room. That's especially true for folks who died in the first you know, six months or so of the pandemic, um, they likely didn't get to have the wake or the funeral or the mm -hmm. shiva or whatever religious ritual that they would normally do with community because of the fact of the circumstances of how their loved one died and the fact that they were in the middle of a pandemic. And for most people, when you lose someone to COVID, the first thing you want to do is not to pack yourself into a indoor space with a bunch of people. And so right. um, a lot of, I, I think COVID has forced mourning into even more isolation than it normally does. I will also say that my observation has been for a long time and has been majorly underscored by the experience of running faces of COVID that um, Americans in general, like I think struggle with how to talk about grief with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's not unique to America. It could be, I, I don't have enough context uh, for, for other countries. And it's obviously different from community to community in the US, but um, you know, the, this notion that people really want to talk about their loved ones who died. And we have this sort of unease, I think, where we think people don't want to get triggered by upsetting things, reliving, you know, trauma and stuff like that. And that's definitely true. But on the other hand, when people lose loved ones, I've, my experience has been people do want to talk about um, who they were and what, what kind of lives they lived. And we, I think sometimes we just aren't, not out of any malice, we just don't know how to give people the space to do that. And so when you combine, combine the isolation um, of the pandemic with some of those dynamics, I think just for some people, a digital space like Faces of COVID may be the only space mm. um, that they've really had access to. 
And I also hear from the families all the time that there's actually something in the fact that the people responding, um, and you know, which one of the things that's really surprised me is that faces of that is that faces of COVID has not been for the most part the subject of like major trolling. Um, I thought it would be, and it's just really mm. never happened. We've had moments, but for the most part, it has been kind of left alone as a special space in its corner mm-hmm. um, of the internet. And what I hear from families is that coming, seeing dozens and dozens of strangers responding to their post is actually one of the most impactful part. It's a kind of reminds us that we're supposed to all be in this together, theoretically. And when you see a stranger, you're like, you know, you expect your loved ones to send you condolence notes. But when somebody on the other side of the country who's never met you and never met your loved one gives you a really earnest expression of uh, condolence, I actually think that's really powerful for yeah. people who are feeling so disconnected and so not trusting um, of each other. And certainly in this moment of polarization of the country, like who can blame them? And so I, I actually think that that is something that people are coming here for. I will also say that the people who follow Faces of COVID and reply, they're coming for something too. I mm-hmm. think they are earnestly looking for a way to express empathy in this pandemic and to show people that they still care about each other and things like that. And we just don't have a lot of you know spaces to do that. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is I think to the point you made earlier, there are certainly folks who come to Faces of COVID and submit their stories because it is about advocacy and accountability um, for uh, this, you know, the the okay. pandemic overall and what happened to their loved one. And I think, you know, I that's why I really leave it up to them to use the space how they want right. to. But if somebody sends a submission where there is a very clear political message that they're trying to relay, it's pretty obvious to me that that's what I need to focus on for the post um, because they're here with a message. Um, and I, if we can help them get that out, then that's certainly meaningful for me. I mean, it, it's, it's such an important thing, but as I, <clears throat> I said at the top, it's like, uh, okay, government, um, we, we, we should uh, put some money and resources and staffing, um, maybe a whole building we can get together um, <laughs> for, for this particular purpose, because I, I, it's a million people, but also a million families and communities. It's, I mean, the web of, uh, people that are impacted. Um, Alex Goldstein, thank you for creating Faces of COVID and thank you for being here. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.